Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Over the last six months, the project team have been conducting research into what Brexit means to and for British citizens who live in Ireland. The British population is the second largest minority population living in Ireland at this point in time, and yet we hear very little about them. In today's episode, I want to pull together a few things to start to plot out how Brexit impacts on British citizens living in Ireland. I'm going to start by introducing you to Imelda Mayer. Imelda is a professor of law at University College Dublin and has written all about the common travel area in her aptly titled paper, The Common Travel Area, More Than Just Travel. I think that this is really useful in setting some of the context around why the case of British citizens living in Ireland and Irish citizens living in Britain is a lesser known story around Brexit. I started by asking Imelda to explain to me what the common travel area was. The common travel area is a bilateral arrangement. I wouldn't even glorify it with the label agreement between um, the UK and Ireland. And it's historically, it's been emerged out of the post-1922 settlement. So Irish people were treated as British citizens for a long time. Um, They're now treated as a special category, if you like, under British law in the Irish context. The situation is a little more complicated, but essentially after the Good Friday Agreement, where there was a greater realisation of the status of British people in Ireland, the Irish government caught up, if you like, with some of the benefits and rights that exist on the UK side. But it's essentially an arrangement reactivated after the Second World War that allows for Irish and British citizens to be treated almost identically as Irish and British in their respective countries. I'm guessing that that has embedded within it a set of kind of entitlements to social protections and things like that. I think the interesting question there is embedded. Like it was the, originally the common travel areas, just that nobody wanted to put up border controls, although they did emerge at various points. And because the Irish were an important source of migrant labour in the UK as well, Irish people have voting rights in the UK. And in practice, um, social welfare and also social benefits are, you're treated as equivalent at the moment. But what I'm unclear about is whether that will continue in the future or not. Now, the expectation has been it will, but it's very difficult to have expectations around Brexit these days, as we know. I think Brexit has posed a challenge for Ireland and the United Kingdom because it has required them to redefine the relationship, having only in the last, since the Good Friday Agreement, essentially having come to a a relationship a very positive, there was a very positive dynamic between the two jurisdictions. This operated within the European Union. Like Ireland always had to felt it had to go into the EU back in 73 because Britain was so much of our trade was with the UK. And so in that context, so Brexit's calling for a recalibration. Within that context, then the common travel area 
it was based on an exchange of letters. There have been agreements around visas, but it's an operational matter in many respects rather than something that's formally written down. And I think as the need for it to be more formalized allows for decisions to be taken about the scope of the travel area, who benefits, what do they benefit with? Do they get to travel and what else do they get beyond travel? And I think the fact we can ask those questions now creates some uncertainty. Where do you think we are in relation to what Brexit might mean for this? I mean, you said that there's a kind of a a reform, not a reformulation, but the need for something a little bit more formal to be put in place, because it's quite, I think vague was the word that best describes the common travel area. So what what do we need to do? It's ironic as a lawyer to say this, but it's the common travel area worked in part because it wasn't written down. And I think the challenge is having to write it, to formalise it to a greater degree means that the exact parameters of the benefits, particularly in the social security side, that will be enjoyed by British people in Ireland or Irish people in the UK is an issue. Now, that said, the common travel area is treated in a separate box, if you like, from other aspects of the relationship between the UK and Ireland and indeed between the UK and the EU in order to facilitate a maximum realisation, if you like, of the common travel area. So in the medium, you know, so it may well work out very well, but in this climate of uncertainty, we operate in the moment, that's not entirely clear, but it is seen as, as special and that's that's a good thing. So upholding that specialness is something that we can hope for um, out of this. And what would you say to, to British people, UK citizens who live in Ireland and Irish citizens who live in the UK, of which, of course, they, they might not be migrants as we kind of understand them? I think Irish people are in, have you, you know, I think we can go back to the historical relationship between the UK and Ireland, which has defined this common travel area and the depth of relationship between maybe between the people's and the way they migrate between the two jurisdictions. People often forget that the British are the second largest minority in Ireland. That's a fact people often fail to take account of. And whatever happens about backstops and whatever, the status of Irish people in Northern Ireland, of course, is a special case. Those who choose to take out Irish passports who were born in Northern Ireland. And um, I think we need to have regard to that in defining the future contours of the common travel area. Thank you very much. That's really helpful. (laughs) Thank you. I think that Imelda captures really well the significance of the common travel area for the relationship between Britain and Ireland, for relationships between British and Irish people. She signalled very clearly the size and significance of the British citizen population living in Ireland. And I just wanted to turn back the clock a bit to my previous interview with Professor Mary Gilmartin from Maynooth University, who has conducted extensive research with British citizens. Here's what she had to say back last year about British citizens who live in Ireland. Well, we know quite a bit from various censuses. And so as a migrant population, British people living in Ireland are very different to other migrant populations in Ireland. Their age profile matches the age profile of Irish nationals. So younger people, people of working age and also older people. Um, We know that in terms of the class profile and in terms of occupation, that again, Uh, It's a really similar uh, structure to Irish nationals, so people working across a whole range of occupations and in a range of different classes. One interesting thing that we know is that British migrants in Ireland are more likely to be living 
in rural areas and along the western seaboard than other migrant groups. So we can see urban concentrations of some migrant groups, you know, in Dublin or in Cork and so on. That's less the case for British migrants. But there's clearly also a very strong concentration of people from Britain who are working who are professionals working in Dublin, so for example, in the IT services, in healthcare, in education, and so on. So it's an interesting profile because it's actually, as a population, very diverse. That's really fascinating about the geographical dispersion of that UK citizen population in Ireland. That wasn't actually something that I had considered, particularly when you said that, you know, largely speaking, the um, demographics of that population mirror that of the Irish population. I mean, is there is there any further detail about those statistics of, of British people living in those kind of more rural coastal areas? Well, there's certainly a sense that some of it is countercultural migration. So it's people moving to rural areas for specific kinds of lifestyles. So that's one aspect. And that's a kind of migration stream that probably has been happening since the 1960s or 70s. But there's also a strong sense that um, it's connected to emigration from Ireland to Britain. That population in the rural areas is often older and it's often British people living in mixed nationality relationships or households with Irish people. So my speculation from that is that it's couples with one Irish partner who emigrated from rural Ireland to Britain forming a relationship with somebody with British uh, nationality and then returning to rural Ireland um, to near where the Irish person grew up or lived previously. So a kind of return retirement migration. Yeah, return <laughs> retirement migration, which then raises its own issues because, of course, particularly since austerity in Ireland, there's been a defunding of a lot of public services and rural areas have been particularly hit. So if you have an older population, and if you have people who are return retirement migrants in this rural area, then the possibility for experiences of exclusion or inequality or lack of access or limited access to healthcare is particularly high. Well, that's really, yeah, so it's got all of those knock-on effects in relation to migrant integration, I suppose, at the, at the point of accessing services, at the point of the welfare state, all of those issues that we do think about when we're talking about migration. I think so. And it, it's one of the issues then when a population isn't identified as a migrant population, that the particular challenges that it faces, that population faces in particular parts of, of the country where they've settled, are not visible and then are not addressed. Mary goes on to talk about how British citizens living in Ireland are an audible minority. In other words, they're a group of people that you can hear are different, as in they are not Irish. And I think what she draws out so carefully in her work is the way that that relationship between Britain and Ireland means that there's extensive intermarriage between British and Irish citizens. And I wanted to bring the voice of one of those British and Irish citizens into the equation to give a sense of how Brexit might be caught up in what are already complicated conversations around identity. Today, I want to introduce you to Hannah. Hannah met with me in November last year 
and we talked over lunch, and you'll be able to hear that from the rather noisy background, about growing up with an Irish and a British parent, moving between the UK and Ireland, and what that has done for her sense of herself. So here's Hannah talking about how her dad came to be in the UK. My dad emigrated to the UK from rural Ireland in the mid-50s and he worked over there for 40 years. He set up a business and he lived in Essex, which is where I met my mum, who's from Essex. And I was born in the early 80s. Dad was, was kind of an older father at that point and he'd always wanted to go home and retire, you know. And um, so it was always on the cards that we were going to go back. And then eventually, when I was 11, um, we sold up and moved back to rural Kilkenny, back to the house that he grew up in. And I did one more year of primary school because they go to secondary school a year later than in the UK. And then I went through school, secondary school in Kilkenny. I moved to Dublin when I was about 18. And I worked here until I was 21. <clears throat> then I went back to the UK, got a job in England, and I lived in England around kind of mainly London and Cambridge for four years. My parents were both still in Ireland at that point. And then my dad got sick and I got made redundant. So I came back to Ireland and went back to college and eventually moved back to Dublin and set up my own business. So I've sort of had, I feel like, the kind of the ultimate half caste because I've got an English parent, an Irish parent, and half my childhood in both countries, half my adulthood in both countries. Um, I have two passports, I have two accents. Hannah really succinctly captures some of that family migration history, some of her personal experience of migration. And as we continue to talk, She explained what this had meant in terms of her sense of herself, of her identity and her feelings of belonging. It's really, really complicated. And I think identity is, it's about so much more than just where you were born or where you grew up or what passport you hold. To me, it's a kind of combination of, you know, your culture, the kind of the religious culture you might have been brought up in and your your, your citizenship. It's a combination of so many things. And it's funny because when I was little in England, I identified very much as being Irish. My dad brought me up to be a staunch Republican. You know, I remember being in primary school and being given a map of Europe to colour in and I tipexed out the border and coloured the whole island in green. And my teachers were amazing. Like, you know, they, they were like, yeah, go for it. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't bat an eyelid. And I was taken to Irish dancing classes and learned the tin whistle and... And I, I loved going home to Ireland and I, because we went back every summer and I saw my cousins and hung out with everybody. And I really felt very Irish, even though I was completely English. And it wasn't until I arrived in Ireland that I realised I wasn't Irish at all. I was actually English and everybody thought I was English and having this big English accent was a problem. For Hannah, this wasn't just about how she felt about herself. It was something that she found herself questioned about on a regular basis, as she explained to me in her description of fromness. And I experienced a lot of that, and I still do. And I still, 
I refer to it as fromness conversations. Like people go, oh, where are you from? If I have my, my English accent on and I do feel like it's, you know, it's my, this is my kind of my default. Um, the Irish one slips out sometimes by accident, but sometimes I choose to use it just to avoid those questions because I get these fromness questions like, where are you from? I'm from Kilkenny. No, you're not. Where are you really from? I'm, I'm from Kilkenny. The accent's confusing, but I'm, I'm from Kilkenny's home. Yeah, but where are you from, though? I'm, I'm from Kilkenny. Where's the accent from, though? Well, the accent's from England. Where in England? It's, it's complicated. I've lived all over the place, you know. And I'm going to be able to... Where are you from, though? And it just does not stop. Because in Ireland, you know, if you're not living in the place that you're from, you've come from that place to live where you are. Like, people move from the country to Dublin or from the country to Cork or to Galway. They don't move around. You know, you don't go from... Kilkenny to Tullamore to Sligo Town to Waterford like you do in England like you people move around a lot more they don't just go to London and then go back home here fromness is a very singular thing and I think a lot of people have a problem understanding that it's not so simple for everybody else and that the process of asking those questions is actually really invasive and really personal because they're not happy until they've got your life story and that's not something you always want to talk about at the bar or in a taxi or in a shop. And I don't think there's anything necessarily malicious in people asking those questions, but it does contribute to this sense of otherness. And most of the time it is really well-meaning. Like All they really want is to know where in London you're from because they assume that if you've got a southern accent, you're from London, so that they can tell you about their cousin who lives in Islington or the two years that they spent in Wimbledon working on a building site. And it's to share, they're actually trying to share, but the whole process is just so demoralising and diminishing. And I find my identity is challenged in that way a couple of times a week. It is exhausting. People say to me all the time, are you, are you more English or more Irish? And answering that is really difficult because sometimes I, I go back to England, I do not feel at home. And here, it's not quite home either a lot of the time. It's weird, and the way that I've recently started describing it is it's like, well, you know, you, you mix red and blue, you get purple. It's something else, actually. It's not half and half. There is no split. I'm an English-Irish person. It's a different thing. And that's the best description that I've come up with. doesn't seem to answer people's questions, necessarily, <laughs> but it does end the conversation, which yeah. I find positive. How then does Brexit intervene in her sense of herself? What does Hannah think this will mean for her and her mum? Let's hear what she had to say about that. Well, for my mum, it's trickier because she doesn't have an Irish passport. So I don't know what it's going to be for her. I don't know what that means for her pension. I don't know what it means for her home. She's got one in the UK, one in Ireland and a widow's pension in Ireland too. She's worked everywhere. I don't know what it means for her. I don't know what it means for her in terms of home ownership. I don't know what it means for her in terms of travel and visas, potentially, I don't know. Like, is the common travel area actually gonna provide for that? Who knows? I mean, obviously, if, if if we leave with no deal, if everything just goes tits up and we slip out by accident, is she going to be okay if she's in England? I have, I have no idea. For me, the material impact, honestly, it's 
sounds callous, but I think Brexit's terrible for rural Ireland. It's probably going to be pretty good for Dublin. So I reckon there'll be a lot of migration to Dublin. There already is some. Um, so my house price will go up. I'm not sure how much it's going to affect any of my major clients because most of them are government funded or they're indigenous industry that is outside agriculture. So I'm not sure how it will affect my business. I don't think it will. I think the, the biggest impact is going to be emotional. I mean, how does it make you feel about Britain and your Britishness? Sad, ashamed, embarrassed, very embarrassed. I think, again, I have a huge amount of empathy for everybody there with the same opinions, you know, the same sort of view on it as me, like the people who are unhappy with the way with what's going to happen. So for the British people, like for my, my sort of my empathy with British people and my sort of my my Britishness in that sense as a, as kind of as a you know a niece and a daughter and a granddaughter and a cousin, I'm sad. But as a citizen, as a, a kind of looking to the leadership, looking to the politicians, <laughs> utterly, utterly furious and deeply embarrassed, deeply embarrassed. And not just the politicians, the journalists. It's shameful. A lot of the debate, a lot of the conversation. And I'm so proud of Ireland. We have not been snotty or rude or threatening or vindictive or any of the things that are so often a part of the conversation about Britishness or British people or Britain or the UK or whatever you want to say in Ireland they've just gone they went high you know and I'm so proud so so proud of Ireland and I think it's in a way like because Ireland has really come of age in the last couple of years you know we have we had the referendum on gay marriage we had the referendum on the eighth amendment to legalize abortion or to provide for legislation for abortion and then we've had brexit and it's like we have just manned up at every stage and i'm so proud of that i'm so proud of us and the way that we are handling it it doesn't make me feel more irish but it makes me so proud of ireland More than anything, what I really liked about Hannah's narration of her feelings about Brexit was how she was able to tease out very complicated understandings of what this meant for her relationship to Britain and to Ireland, to being British and to being Irish. And as she revealed, this was part of much longer conversations that she'd been having with herself about who she was and her place in the world, born out of the fact that she had dual nationality, a passport to both countries. And it's very clear that for her, Brexit is part of this longer personal biography. Her understandings of Brexit are located within that. So it brings to the surface and brings to the fore questions that she has a long history with. I think that it's important that we recognise that for dual nationals, these conversations are complicated. They're questions about your place in the world, about 
where you really belong, that you might be faced with on a daily basis. And it's here that I want to end. We'll be back again soon with another episode. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Nicola Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme. So please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.